Hey, good morning. Hey, one, if it is your first time here, thank you so much for being with us, checking out a new church. And if you're listening online, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, before we get into the message, and I got a lot of, I'm, I'm geeked up. You give me a week off. Thank you, Justin, for teaching. And uh, this is what happened. So, and I had about eight cups of coffee this morning. So behind me, um, you will see, most of you know what podcasts are. Most of you know what Spotify is. Um, we are expanding with our message stuff a little bit. There's a couple of things that we wanted to do. One, sometimes you're not able to be here, and so to be able to go back and listen to a message, especially when it's like in a series that we're about to start like this, um, on iTunes and on Spotify, if you search We Are South Point, you can now find all of our messages starting today, and there's a sample one. Um, those will be available through that media outlet. Um, also, in the future, we're going to look into streaming our service as well. Not so you can stay home in your pajamas, that sort of thing. But if you're traveling, and we also know a lot of people, whenever they are maybe moving into town, trying to figure out a new church home, a lot of them, and some of you have probably done this, they go online and they listen to a service, kind of see what's the music like. You know, do I, do I have to wear a suit? We're not a suit place. If you want to wear a suit, that's fine. Um, but this is me, um, so we're going to do that as well. But if you want to listen to any of the messages, you can do it on the website, but you can also get those on Spotify and on Apple iTunes as well. Okay, we are going to spend the next about six months looking at a couple pages of the Bible. It's kind of what we do around here, right? Um, we've taught through two books since I've been here, and we made it nine pages. Now we're going to make it up to 12. So here we go. Um, there are certain sermons that you will hear that they stick with you, right? Some of you remember you listened to a message, and it was the message that God reached out and grabbed you and said, I'm going to make you into a new creation. And you never forgot that sermon. And it could have been from whoever, but you remembered that message because that message is what brought you into the family of God. And then there's sometimes you go to church, and man, you're struggling with some stuff. It's like, man, I got this in front of me, and I don't know what to do with it. And you hear a sermon, and look, you may have heard that sermon a hundred times, but the 101st time, finally, you go, okay, that's what it looks like to open my hand and to be freed from that, to find freedom from sin. And like it sticks with you, like I remember that message. There's some sermons where you just hear them and you go, man, that was really good. Y'all don't get to do that as much. But there are times where like you hear one and you go, man, that was some good stuff. Like I'll never forget, I was in college, I listened to a sermon called The Two Wills of God uh, by a pastor in the DFW area named Matt Chandler. Um, that is an hour and 10 minute message that you got to chew on, is how I would put it. And for most people, they have to chew on it a long time. But for me, I had been wrestling with all these different theological issues. And I heard that sermon and I went, got it. Like for me, it was the, the cherry on top. I finally understood, like, oh, that all makes sense now. And like, I've never forgotten that message. The fun thing is, I found out that was actually preached by another guy named John Piper who took it from another guy named Jonathan Edwards. That sermon had been around for hundreds of years. Like even Jonathan Edwards, like if you were in high school at some point, I don't know if it's still required reading, but you read a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a rough title. There's a lot of grace in it, but like that message is like famous. Like it's been printed millions and millions of times. The sermon that we're going to look at today, we're going to start walking through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm really excited about this. I've been really just kind of pouring over it the last several weeks. It's the greatest sermon ever. And here's the thing. It's not the greatest sermon because I'm preaching it. I'm just talking about what Jesus talked about. And so for the next little bit, um, about six months, we're just going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because within this, it is a profound, profound thing. Like, this sermon is weighty. At times you read it and go, I get that. But then when you really start looking at it, you go, what, what did he just say? And so we're going to begin looking at that today. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. It'll be on the screens, and then you can follow along. We're just going to kind of take this piece by piece as we walk through this amazing sermon that Jesus gives. So in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 1, it says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. Now, before we get into anything that he's going to say, what is this sermon going to be about? Because we're going to spend a long time looking at it. We should kind of have a big overview. What, what is this? Like, the reason I'm sitting, I went and grabbed my chair today, because traditionally in that culture, the teacher would sit and everyone else would stand. Now, I'm going to do you a favor, and I'm not going to make you stand the entire time. But Jesus literally goes up on this mountain. It's early in his ministry. And, man, everywhere he went, he had been healing people. There are crowds that are building because it turns out when someone can physically heal someone immediately, it does get people's attention. And, man, he's got all these people surrounding him. He's already gone and spent 40 days in the desert wilderness, growing with God, fasting, being tempted. I mean, Jesus, when we say he understands what you're going through, he understands what you're going through. So what is this sermon about? There's a lot of people that look at this, and you get a lot of different answers. So I wanted to lay kind of a foundation before we get started. One, this isn't simply an ethics lesson. Now, there's a lot of ethics within what Jesus is going to talk about. But it's not simply ethics. Christianity is not just being a good person, okay? There are a lot of good people in the world, but if you don't have Christ, there's, it's nothing. Like, now, there's, ethics are important. Obedience is important. But sometimes people go, well, this is just kind of a rule book. It's, it's not a rule book because what you're going to find is you're really, really not going to be good at this, all right? Like, this is going to be very, very difficult. It's not just ethics. Some people call that moralistic theism. Like, just being a better person, that's what Christianity is about. No, Christianity is not about being a better person. Christianity is about being a new person. It's also not just about showing your inability. If you read through this, man, sometimes you'll go, like you, like you said, man, I got a lot of work on. And you kind of start beating yourself up a little bit. It's, it's not about that. This sermon is about how to have new life. Ultimately, this is about how to have a new life because when Jesus shows up, this is early in his ministry. And so you walk into a ministry and you kind of start to evaluate. Like if you're a minister or pastor or something like that, Jesus does it on a very different level because Jesus shows up to minister and he understands the religious system of that day. That day was all about pretty up your outside while inside people were dead and dying. Now you can clean up your outside and make it look good. The man on the inside, you, you know the reality. Like, you know the things that you think. You know the way that you process things. You know the things that you struggle with. And the religious system of Jesus' day with the Pharisees, Sadducees, all the, all the religious leaders, it was just clean up the outside and then you're okay. And people were dead and hurting. And so Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm going to teach you something a little different. I'm going to teach you about how to have a new life. And so he preaches what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sea of Galilee on a mountainside, Jesus, and we know his disciples, and probably a good number of people that followed up, they hike up this mountain, and then Jesus sits down, and he begins to teach. 
And it's the longest red letter section of Scripture. Like literally everything we are going to look at is just mouth from Jesus. And in reality, if you just read these next three chapters, it takes about ten minutes. Like you guys wish you could get a ten-minute sermon. Like Jesus is a little bit better than me. I am a little long-winded. But if, if, if this is everything, it was ten minutes. Now it was probably a little bit more. Um, we know from John, he says, hey, if we recorded everything Jesus said, then there's not enough books in the world to fill it. Um, and so it may have been longer than this, but this is what's recorded, and this is what we have. And man, he is going to deal with every number of issue. For the next three weeks, we're going to look at what's called the Beatitudes, the supreme blessedness. But man, he's going to tackle issues like money. He's going to tackle issues like anger, lust, um, divorce, prayer. Like he hits a lot of stuff in 10 minutes of talking. And we got to unpack that because, man, a lot of this stuff, I had a guy tell me it's like cheesecake. Cheesecake is really rich, right? Like you, you can't eat the whole cheesecake. I've tried. Um, but, man, just a little bit of it goes a long way. And, man, every single word that Jesus says carries so much weight with it. And that's what we're going to get to look at. We're going to learn how to be blessed. We're going to learn how to deal with life issues. It's also spoken with authority. At the end of this sermon, everyone goes, man, that man speaks with authority. <laughs> well, he could because he was God. See, within this, as we look at the words of Jesus, you get some options. Some people say, well, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Um, C.S. Lewis had a great statement. He said, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord, the Lord. Now, could he have been a liar? Could he have been making all this stuff up just to get people to surround him? Yeah, like we see that. However, when you see that in today's world, those people aren't willing to go to a cross and die. So I think the liar kind of gets taken out. The other side is, he's a lunatic. Like, Jesus makes statements like, the Father and I are one. Like, when he asked Peter, hey, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. He didn't correct him. Like, he would be a lunatic if that was the case. Because, like, if you had somebody walk up to you today and go, I am God, I would go, and what size straitjacket do you wear? Like, we don't, we, don't, <laughs> we don't really run with that. Like, when people make statements like that, we flee from it, and yet this is the one time in history where someone can make that because he is Lord. So he's going to speak with authority, and he's going to teach. And then from our side of it, we get to listen, and hopefully we get to grow. So let's look in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. So he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we look at that, the foundation for the next three weeks as we look at the Beatitudes, we got to understand what the word blessed means. Because sometimes, and it may be in your translation, sometimes it says happy are those. Um, there is a big difference between blessed and happiness. Okay? The blessed are always happy. The happy are not always blessed. Sometimes when this gets translated, it does carry a sense of happiness. But a lot of times we know in today's world and our society, happiness is very circumstantial, right? Man, it's Christmas. I got all this stuff. Therefore, I'm happy. All oh, the batteries died in that one thing. Therefore, I'm not happy. Like we base a lot on circumstance, and this is not what it's talking about. When it says beatitude, what that means is supremely or supreme blessedness. So when he says blessed, it carries more weight than just happiness. The blessed are always going to be happy, but the happy are not always going to be blessed. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
Like, a lot of these, if you read them, like, you've probably read these a number of times. And when you really start digging in, like, what does that mean to be poor in spirit? It's not talking about a financial, like, misfortune. Like, Luke records some of this, and he records it a little bit differently. And sometimes people go, well, he's just talking to the poor. No, we, we know from Scripture it's not just the poor because we talked a few weeks ago. Paul said, hey, I've learned to be content when I had a little, and I learned to be content when I had a lot. Like, this isn't saying that if you have financial gain in any way that it's a negative thing. No, this isn't talking about finances. Uh, We know that. This is talking about a very deep root issue. And I think the reason that Jesus starts with this one is because he wants to lay the biggest foundation that he can. Because this is ultimately talking about spiritual bankruptcy. And spiritual bankruptcy leads to eternal rewards. Now, I want to explain that. Because even this week when talking with some of the staff, it's like, that seems counterculture to, or a little off from what we normally talk about. No, when I say spiritual bankruptcy, this is the starting point. The poor in spirit can take a good, hard look at their life and realize, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this without Jesus. Spiritual bankruptcy is taking an honest look at yourself and going, I am not good enough. And that can be hard, right? We can look at other people's faults, and man, man, Susan over there, she's got lots of issues, and Billy over here, he's got this. But when we look at ourselves, we kind of gloss over some things at times. If we're not careful, we'll try and justify, well, I did that because of this situation, where it's not about that. Spiritual bankruptcy is taking a look at yourself and going, man, I just can't do it on my own. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit, to look. It's not walking around, real negative attitude. I read one thing this week. There was a little girl years ago that said, that horse must be a Christian. It has a long face, which I laughed at. Because um, like throughout our history, like Christianity, it's like, man, we need to be joyous. It needs to be a celebration. But here's where it starts. The poor in spirit look and go, I can't do it on my own. I don't have the power to change myself. Again, it's not about cleaning up my outside. I know the inside, and I know, man, that inside can be rough, and that inside is broken. And the poor in spirit see that, and they acknowledge that there's something better, and there's something higher, and they acknowledge that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can find salvation. And here's the flip side to every one of these. There's a blessed part, and then he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, this is the starting point for all of this. When a person can look at themselves and go, man, it's just not in me to be good enough. And I'm broken over that. I'm, I'm pouring my spirit over that sense. But then he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Matthew, when he writes, Matthew wrote to a very Jewish culture. And so they, sometimes they'll say the kingdom of God. They didn't like to use the word God like it was so holy we wouldn't even write it. So he says the kingdom of heaven. But what he's talking about is, hey, for the poor in spirit, for those that are broken, For those that know, hey, I can't do it on my own. And those that run to Jesus. What's the reward to that? The kingdom of heaven. An eternity spent with him. And so you suddenly have this brokenness that turns into new life. And from there we start making spiritual deposits, right? Because we shouldn't be spiritually bankrupt from that point on. Spiritual bankruptcy is just the starting point where you go, it's not me, I need God. And once that happens... Then we begin making investments in that. We begin building in that. We begin serving. We begin growing. We begin spending time in God's word. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And it's no longer spiritual bankruptcy. It's this overflow and eruption of God's grace. That's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. 
to have that moment where you say, I need Jesus. I need him. I need him. I need him. And the great thing is, Christ is standing there going, you do. You need me. And I'm here. And the Bible uses all this different language of, man, you're made into a new creation, taking a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. This beautiful thing happens. And we're made new. And then we begin to follow. And what was once spiritual bankruptcy turns into an overflow of joy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look in verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, we kind of have to ask the question, what does this mean? What does it mean to mourn? There's a couple different things it could mean, and as they progress, we get towards the actual answer. One, it could be talking about blessed are those who mourn for people. And the reality is, like, we've, we've got people that are in that. There's nothing wrong with mourning. Sometimes we, 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 we lose out on that. Scripture says there is a time to mourn. And look, I know we've got people walking through that right now. And we love you. We celebrate life. And that is just a reality. Literally, wasn't in my notes until last night. I got a text message. and man, Years ago, I had a, a volunteer. Her name was Miss Beverly. Um, sweet, sweet woman. Always color-coordinated everything. Um, she was about 174 years old when I met her. And uh, she had had a stroke years before. And I, I have a little bit of a hearing problem. Um, and so I was trying to also read lips, but I couldn't do that. And it's my first week at my new job. I'm the student pastor, and this lady comes up who is v- much older than most of the other volunteers, and she starts talking to me, and I can't, I can't hear a single word. And so I do, the, like, the nod and grin and, like, just totally faking it. And uh, she walked off. I looked at Whitney. I said, what did that woman say to me? And she goes, she said she's really happy to have you here, and she's one of your volunteers. And I was like, all right. And uh, I got to know Miss Beverly. Um, She and her husband had spent decades in Africa as ministers, missionaries in some really, really crazy places. Man, she came from a very different time than the 17-year-old girls that she was teaching. Man, she loved on them. And I watched the level of respect these students had for her. Like when she would come in the room, man, they went straight to her. Like she taught them. She loved on them well. She was one of the most amazing volunteers I've ever had. She got mad at me at times when she needed to, like, she was amazing. I got a text message last night from another friend of mine said, hey, she's, she's not doing well. So Tuesday, I'm going to go say goodbye. And I know that's probably the last time I'm going to see her on this side of heaven. And like I teared up last night, I celebrate her life. She knows where she's going, and she'll be the first to tell you I'm ready. But we still mourn. And there's a time for mourning. But it's not exactly what it's talking about here. As we take it to the next step, some of what he is hitting on here is looking out across the world and looking at all of the issues, looking at all the pain, all the sin, everything like that, and not being angry about it, although that is okay, righteous anger, but being broken for it. So many times we're very quick to go, man, that makes me angry, but are we broken for it? Like when we look at injustice in the world, when we look at things like racism or abortion or inequality, a lot of times we're quick to pick up a pitchfork, but we're really slow to cry about it. And he is hitting on that. Looking at the sin of the world 
And instead of just being angry, going, that hurts. Like, I am broken for that. And that's got to be a hallmark of Christianity. Like, far too often, we've been quick to be angry. Like, we haven't mourned enough. Like, Christianity needs more people looking at injustice in the world and doing something about it. Like, not just being mad, but looking at it going, that kills me on the inside. And so that's part of who we are. Like, as we look at social injustice in the world, and we look at something like racism, and you got guys like William Wilberforce years and years ago in England who led the charge and said, hey, this is not okay. Like, I'm not just angry. Like, it hurts. It breaks my heart that we are enslaving other humans. And man, he fought and just about died over that. And it led to change. And we look out on other instances of the world, and we say, hey, man, it's, it's not fair that these people are being taken advantage of. It's not fair that people with no voice are being taken from us. Like we look at that and we're broken for it. That's what it looks like to mourn a little bit. But really what Jesus is talking about takes that the next logical step. Sometimes we can be really quick to look around at all the other stuff and be broken over it. But are you broken over the things in your life? That's what he's saying here. You taking a good, hard honest look at your own life and seeing those things that you know you struggle with call it your secret sin what is it it's the one you just thought about that's how i always tell people like the first thing that popped in your mind that's what it is like looking at that and going man if i can just come to a place where i see it i acknowledge it and i am broken for it then i can learn to release it then I can learn what it looks like to walk in grace and have that taken. And some, you know what that looks like. You've had some of those moments in life where, man, there are things I wrestled with and finally just said, look, I'm finally going to say it hurts me that it's hurting God. And I learned to release that. Because here's the great side. He said, blessed, supreme blessedness are those who mourn they shall be comforted. That's the flip side to that. And you can finally go, man, I have had so much angst over this. I am tired of carrying this around. I'm going to take it to Jesus. And what's he do? He scolds you. No. He says, you're going to finally find comfort. So for all that pent-up angst you've had, there is comfort on the other side, but you've got to mourn for it. You've got to be broken for it. If you want comfort, you have to acknowledge the sin in life. Do we want to find that comfort? Do we want to have that and know what it looks like to have Jesus going, look, man, come here. I love you. I forgive you. I don't want you to walk in that anymore. I want you to know the comfort that comes of going, that's not me. Like, I'm not dealing with that anymore. Like, there's so much comfort in that moment, but it takes a personal acknowledgement. you got to be broken over the sin in your life. you got to look at it and take a good hard look at it and go, you know what? I know that's not right, and I'm tired of struggling with it. I'm tired of walking in that. I don't want that anymore. I'm ready to give it to Jesus. And when you do, there's comfort. Maybe you need to hear that today, maybe. Some of you are struggling with things, wrestling with stuff, and you want comfort, right? Like, no one's doing this, like, because, oh, I love this pain that it brings my life. But you just feel like there's no way out. And meanwhile, Jesus is standing there 2,000 years ago speaking to us today going, I can comfort you. I can, I can help you. But you got to be broken over it. you got to be at a point where you go, I 
don't want this anymore. I want Jesus more. And then we find comfort. And then verse 5. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now what is meekness? Like that's one, a lot of times we, we feel like if someone's meek, we kind of poster child this as someone who gets run over by everything and won't stand up for anything and has no voice and no spine. That's not what this is getting at. Meekness was a very interesting thing as Jesus was saying this. Because in that culture, I've, I've shared this before, like humility, meekness were not qualities that you said, you know what, I hope my kids grow up with that. Um, that's, that's how people got killed. <laughs> like you wanted someone who definitely had a spine. Maybe it was good with a sword, that sort of thing in Jesus' day. But meekness was one that was often looked at as, yeah, that's not, that's not a quality that we really want. But the Greek word that's used here carries a couple different ideas in it. One, it carries this idea of an ethical element. Like Aristotle used it a lot. And it carries this idea of, no, someone who actually has ethics about them. Again, this isn't only about ethics, but there's a lot within it. It also carried a different picture to it. It carried a picture of a domesticated animal. This animal that, take an ox. No, no one in here is going to wrestle an ox. Like, they're huge animals. Supremely strong. And yet, when domesticated, they can do so much to further mankind. And the idea of meekness is this idea that, yes, you have power, but there was a domesticated element, and you learned to serve a higher master. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Meekness is not weakness. And there's a little bit of a quote. It is a controlled desire to see others' interest advanced ahead of one's own. And I would add this, especially God's interest. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that realize, as we kind of progress through that, man, there was a time where I was spiritually bankrupt. I knew I couldn't do it. Christ saved me. And there was a time where I mourned over my sin, and Christ comforted me. And in doing those things, I realized it's not about me. There is something higher, and I am 100% okay with submitting to that. That's what meekness is here. Submitting to God's interest over our own. But also looking out for other people. Knowing that, hey, if God's gifted us, we have the opportunity to serve somewhere, why would we not? If God's calling us to ministry and he's calling us to places where he's doing things, and it's like, hey, come play. Why would we not do that? Why would we not submit to that? We would put others' interest ahead of our own. It's like, one of the hallmarks around here, like we talk about, we want to always be a very welcoming church. As soon as people come in, welcome. Why? Because we want to put others before ourselves. Why do we serve? Like, why do we have people watching kids right now? And man, I know it's crazy over there because one of them is mine. Because they're putting others' interests ahead of their own. Why do we have people that are up here throughout the week doing different ministries? Because they're putting others' interests ahead of their own. Why do we meet once a month and love on our community and help feed people and pray with them and share the gospel because we put others' interest above our own. And ultimately, when we look at what God is doing, we just say, hey, as long as I'm walking in your will, I'm going to be okay. And meekness is something that I'm more than okay with. There's a great example in the Old Testament of this. Moses. He's called the meekest man on earth. Now, Moses, like, we wouldn't say he was spineless. Like, he stood up to the most powerful human at the time in the Pharaoh. Like, we know that he had a voice. We know he could get angry at times. But there was a time early in ministry, really before all that, where Moses' brother and sister get upset. 
man, he's, he's got all this power. We should, we should overthrow him. Now, guess what Moses did? He didn't even confront him. He just said, I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to trust that God is big enough to do anything, and so I'm just going to let God be God. And it's great. God calls a meeting. Like, if you go and read this in Numbers, he's like, hey, three of you out here now. And uh, he goes, hey, I use prophets to speak to people, but I talk to Moses face to face. And so, Miriam, Aaron, here's some punishment. Moses never had to even raise a finger. He just let God be God. So many times we want to charge in and use the term a couple weeks ago, like a lion doesn't need a mouse to defend it. (laughs) Sometimes we forget that God is God. He's big enough. Sometimes we try and take things into our own hands and feel like I've got this, when meanwhile we need to be meek and go, I'm just going to let God be God. And I'm going to follow. I'm going to submit to his will. I'm going to look for God's interest in everything that I do. He says, okay, you do those things, you inherit the earth. And we know he doesn't mean like a literal kingdom like, okay, if I can be a really good Christian, I'm just going to take over the country. It's not what he's saying here. Like he's talking a little bit in the future, future earth. But we also get the opportunity to inherit the earth right now. Like you're on this planet for however many years, Surrounded by who knows how many people. How many opportunities do we have to impact others? How many opportunities do we have to share the truth of what it looks like to be spiritually broken so that you can be made fully alive? How many times do we have the opportunity to say, hey, I know someone is hurting and I see sin in the world and I want to do something about it. Meekness is not something that we have been really known for in Christian history. And yet Christ is calling us, hey, we need to step up. We need more believers to model this. Not to be rich in pride, but to be poor in spirit. Not to just be angry, but to be broken over sin in the world. And to be able to know that, hey, meekness is okay. Because we've got example after example of it in Scripture. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, this morning I pray that we would just let the words of Jesus spill over us. God, we'd be saturated in it. God, that we would be willing to take a look at the things that he says and then take an inward look and go, how am I with that? God, if there's someone that's here today and they... They've just never had a real relationship with Christ. God, I pray that you would be all over them. That today would be the day where spiritually they would just be bankrupt because they can't do it on their own. But the truth that your son loves and saves would just fill them. And so if you're here today and you don't know what that looks like, there's going to be different people around after service. Talk to somebody. Maybe all you do is say, hey, look, that's me. I'm spiritually bankrupt. What do I do with that? We'd love to share the gospel more. God, I pray that we would be supremely blessed this week because we're walking with you. And we'd look at your word and it would just fill us. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.